I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Happy New Year and welcome to the first episode of The Best in the World with Richard Parr of 2018. Have you set your New Year's resolution? (laughs) Have you given it up already? We, in fact, like to talk about goals on this program. We like to talk about them in the long term, in the short term, and I've got the perfect guest for you in this first episode of the year. We speak to Brandon Slay. Brandon Slay was an American wrestler who won Olympic gold at the 2000 Sydney Games. He was in the freestyle 76-kilogram division. And he's got a fascinating story, as well as teaching us what exactly you should be thinking about when it comes to goals. And in particular, that you need to think about process goals. Brandon tells us his story of how he became Olympic champion, even though he lost that 2000 final to Alexander Leopold. He explains exactly what happened there and how he eventually got his gold medal and why his silver medal wasn't in very good shape. It's it's quite a funny tale in the end there from Brandon Slate. Brandon was also then a coach for eight years with the United States wrestling team. He was the coach at the 2012 and 2016 Olympics. And we talk about the similarities between the training methods of his students during that era and also what he did as he was leading up to his first Olympic Games. It's all really interesting stuff. And we talk about what was going through his mind when he finally did decide to retire competitively from the sport. So Brandon is an excellent guy. He's a, a really nice guy and I think we'll all agree that we will take away something from this episode that we can use in our everyday life. All right, well, let's get to it. Let's speak to the best in the world. It is the Olympic champion wrestler, Brandon Slay. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Brandon Slay, Olympic wrestling champion. Welcome to the Best in the World with Richard Parr. We're going to look back at your amazing career and life as a wrestler. But for those of us who who don't know what you're up to at the moment, maybe if you could give us an update on that, please, Brandon. So right now I'm the executive director and head coach of the Pennsylvania Regional Training Center, which is our Olympic training center for wrestling here at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Fantastic. And was it an easy decision for you to go into coaching after competing? 
No, it wasn't easy at all. Actually, I never told anybody I was going to be a coach. You know, growing up when somebody said, what are you going to do for a living? I never said coach. And I chose to go to school at the University of Pennsylvania and the Warden School of Business because I was interested in business and I got a degree in finance and entrepreneurial management here from Warden. And, and after I was done wrestling, I ended up, I traveled around the world and did a bunch of speaking engagements in wrestling clinics and just try to strike while the iron was hot, you know, after the Olympics to kind of to have the most influence that I could on, on youth and the sport of wrestling. And then eventually I went into the business world, commercial real estate, and I was in Dallas, Texas, um, working in commercial real estate for almost five years. And, and that's where I met my wife. Uh, she was a forensic accountant for a company called Deloitte. And we worked in the same building and, um, you know, long story short is I just really continued to, to miss the sport of wrestling and miss Olympism and just the ability to potentially help the sport of wrestling grow. So I ended up <clears throat> accepting a job as our assistant national coach for USA Wrestling and moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado to the Olympic Training Center. And, you know, I did that for the last eight years and, and coached, helped coach our, our Olympic team in 2012 in London and our Olympic team in 2016 in Rio. And then over this last year, I made the transition from, you know, being one of our Olympic coaches to coming back to my alma mater and coaching our Olympic training center here in Philadelphia. Mm, fantastic. I want to talk a bit more about the, the coaching in a moment. Um, you, you said there that you uh, didn't say when you were growing up that you wanted to be a coach. What did you say you wanted to be when you were growing up? I was born and raised in Amarillo, Texas, and football was a big part of my life growing up. Um, clearly like you know American football and I played from fourth grade all the way through my senior in high school but as I got older I realized that I was probably going to be like five eight you know 180 pounds (laughs) so being an NFL football player was probably going to be a challenge so I started spending time you know with some some businessmen in my town who just became good mentors for me in, in, in life and I saw that they were prosperous, you know, in their fields of, of, uh, in their job. And so I ended up learning more about business and, and what it was going to take to be successful in business. And that's why I started telling people in high school that I wanted to go into business. I want to be a businessman. I want to study economics. I want to understand, you know, supply and demand and how that affects our economy. And, and so ultimately that's why I chose to go to Penn and that's why I chose to go to the Wharton School of Business because it was the number one business school in the United States. So when when did you then realize that while you were going towards this career of business, when did you realize that actually I'm very very good at wrestling and and this is the path which is going <laughs> to I'm going to go down for a while. Yeah. Well, in high school, you know, I say humbly, but in high school I was a three-time champion in Texas and then here at the University of Pennsylvania, I ended up getting second in the nation twice. So two-time NCAA finalist, two-time All-American. And so in college, I realized that I had this potential to clearly be one of the best wrestlers in the nation. And then, uh, you know, throughout my career, I'd had a, a few opportunities to wrestle overseas and make some world teams for my age group. That meaning, like, I made a world team for fit. 14 and 15-year-olds. I made another world team for 17, 18-year-olds. And, and during my high school years, traveling to those international tournaments in Budapest, Hungary, and Cali, Colombia, South America, 
all that together, you know, gave me a confidence that, you know, if I wanted to continue in the sport of wrestling, I felt like I had potential and I had to make the, the decision when I graduated from Penn, was that I going to essentially retire from wrestling and, and metaphorically put my wrestling shoes in the center of the mat and walk away and, and probably move to New York city and start working for a company, you know, in, in the finance industry, get a job in finance. Or was I going to continue to wrestle and try to become an Olympic champion in the next Olympics, which were in Sydney, Australia? And I graduated from college in 1998, and then the next Olympics in Sydney were clearly two years later. So I just thought, man, two years to to kind of make that sacrifice to keep training for my Olympic dream. I just thought the benefits, you know, would outweigh the costs. And you know, looking back on it, I feel that they have. Mm, well, definitely. And in that space of two years, uh, I know you moved to Colorado Springs. And one of the things I heard about you is that you actually said it was easier training for the Olympics than it was when you were training at the university. Can you just explain that a little bit, please? Well, when, you, when you're at the University of Pennsylvania, it's an Ivy League school. When you're studying at the Warren School of Business, it's the number one business school in the nation. So my point is, is school was not easy. It was very challenging. There was a, the workload was high. So when you have four to five classes at times and academic challenge, and then you're also wrestling in a Division One college and you have you know, potentially whatever that would be, maybe like six, five to six wrestling workouts a week and you'd lift weights three times a week. So you potentially be working out, you know, eight to nine times a week. So you, you add those eight to nine workouts with your academic responsibilities, that just becomes really, really challenging, having both. And when I moved out to the Olympic Training Center after I graduated from college, I didn't have, you know, four or five classes. I wasn't, you know, writing three or four papers a week. I wasn't studying for midterms and finals. All I was essentially doing is I was ultra-focused on becoming the best wrestler in the world. And so all I was doing out there was wrestling and lifting weights, and I didn't have the, the academic rigor to deal with. So for me, you know, training for the Olympics <laughs> at the Olympic Training Center was really, really easier than being a student athlete. Then. Fantastic. So give us an idea of a, a typical day during that time period. At the Olympic Training Center? Yes, please. So a typical day would have been, say, you know, say Monday, I would get on the mat from let's say eight to eight to ten, and then I'd get on the mat again from three to five. So get on the mat probably four hours a day on Monday, four hours a day on on Friday. So those those days were similar, Mondays and Fridays. And then Tuesdays and Thursdays we lift in the morning from eight to ten, get on the mat in the afternoon. So you your Tuesdays and Thursdays were about four four hours, and one was a weightlifting session, one was a wrestling session, and then Wednesdays was our cross training day. That's where we we swim you know, for about an hour or we would go for a run um, or ride bikes, something just different than wrestling. And then we lift again on Saturday. So, I mean, you're essentially working out four hours a day on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. You know, you get a couple hour workout in on Wednesday, a couple work hour workout in on Saturday. Then you have Saturday afternoon and Sundays off. How much did that then differ to what you were then training your wrestlers going into the 2012 and 2016 Olympics, did it differ much? I didn't really differ much. I kept them just because I felt like that schedule was beneficial for me and worked well for me. 
I kept them on a very similar schedule, and so I think for a lot of those guys, it paid off. Mm. And and what about nutrition? What were you eating during that time? Well, for, for me, I, I typically walked to around weighing probably 183 pounds, um, 184 pounds, and I would cut down to 167 pounds. So I had to be very disciplined with my diet. And as I got closer to competitions, I definitely had to have a much more wise diet and kind of decrease my calorie intake, drink a lot more water. And, you know, I did that as I got closer to make sure I could make weight. Mm. Were there any, any foods which you, you found often difficult uh, to resist when you knew you should? Well, yeah, there's always a, you know, there's always a temptation to, to eat sweets and, you know, have a, have some ice cream, whatever, a donut every once in a while. But I think you know, when you're working out eight to 10 times a week, you know, you're, you're burning tons of calories and, and every once in a while you can for sure get away with you know, splurging a little bit. You got to be graceful with yourself. You can't be so, so kind of dogmatic and disciplined about your diet. So that there's no fun at all. You got to make sure you have some balance in there. I think that's important. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. You may have noticed the odds gremlin in the audio there. It's a little bit unfortunate, but don't worry. From this point onwards, it is plain sailing, and you'll be able to hear clearly every single word Brandon has to say. Thanks if you've got this far. I really appreciate it. I, I, I promise it really does get better. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast so far. And if you've listened to any of the other podcasts, I'd love for you to tell me what has been your favourites and who are some of the people you'd also like to hear on this podcast. And you can do that by engaging with me on Twitter. I'm at Richard underscore Parr. And I'm looking to create more of a community for for our program and for people who are interested in Olympic and world champions and for people who are interested in peak performance and nutrition and mindfulness and... uh, you know, mental health as well. Looking to create a community, and I'd like to do that uh, through the email list that I produce every Friday as part of Sportachino. I produce uh, an email list, uh, an, an essay or an article, or links to other things that I found throughout the week, or just a personal story of mine. And you can join that email by going to sportachino.com forward slash email. I'll say that again. It's sportachino.com forward slash email. You just have to put your email address and your first and last name. And there's always some competitions as well at times. And there's always really good content. So please come and join the community that way. And of course, we're also on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com forward slash best in the world... That is where you can continue to support our program and you can tell us what you like, what you don't like. And plus, we'll also have some bonus extended material for you to listen to throughout the months as well. Please go and check that out. It's a crowdfunding page. It's called patreon.com forward slash best in the world. We would really appreciate some of the coffers that you can put in so we can continue to produce this content. All right, let's return to my conversation with the best in the world, Brandon Slay. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.
One of the things, Brandon, we often discuss on this program is failures and certain moments in our champions' lives which helps propel them forwards and, and helps get them the success they ultimately desire. Was there any moments of failure that you particularly had in your career which you think helped you later on? I feel like the very beginning of my career was was instrumental into how I viewed success and failure in sport. My very first year in wrestling, I was I was actually 0-20, so I lost every single match. And, of course, I was only six, and <laughs> it, was the, it was at the beginning, and I was wrestling mostly kids who were seven, eight-year-olds. They're older than me. But I think after that year of going 0-20 and, and then my second year, I think I was like seven and 15. And then my third year, you know, I finally had a winning record. Just, just the understanding of success doesn't come overnight that most people in our culture nowadays, I think they, they desire to try something to start something, whether it's a sport or a hobby or a new job or whatever it may be. And I think there's just this idea that they're going to become successful and really good at something immediately. And that's just not the reality. I mean, anybody that starts something for the first time, specifically a sport, you don't walk in to a basketball court and take a basketball and just start, you know, shooting three pointers and making every one of them. You don't pick up a football and start, you know, throwing perfect passes or get a soccer ball and start having kicking it, you know, in amazing ways. I mean, it takes time and effort. It takes um, making good decisions. It takes extra hard work. And I think just that understanding of seeing my career, and, and the kind of trajectory it took and how I just I continued to get better over time. That was really important for me when I got to middle school and high school and college and then even training for the Olympics because the year that I won the Olympics in 2000, I actually lost five matches that year. I went to a couple of tournaments and, and I didn't even place and got beat by some guys. And I think just, again, that attitude of realizing – I can't let a loss, I can't let defeat kind of define me. I can't let it destroy me, knowing that it's just it's just part of kind of failing forward and struggling well and taking those necessary lessons to make me stronger. Uh, I think all that was really important for my career. Mm. And we're starting to move on towards the, the, the mental aspect of the sport. Was there any kind of mental preparation you would typically do for each match you would contest in? The, the mental preparation is what just I call visualization. A lot of that had to do with visualizing specific opponent. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Opponents that I wanted to beat, so I would see myself scoring points on, let's say, the guy from Russia or the guy from Iran or the guy from Bulgaria or even the United States and certain Americans that I had to beat. So I would see myself taking them down, turning them, you know, pinning them, seeing myself getting my hand raised against them, at the end of that match and seeing that over and over and over and over again, whether it's during the day when I'm daydreaming, daydreaming or whether it's a specific time that I set aside to visualize or whether it was laying in bed at night before I went to sleep. I think just that, that seeing myself succeed, seeing myself do what I've been drilling and preparing to do, I think was very, very important for my success because I think if you can see it, then you're able to do it. I think if you're not able to visualize yourself doing it and you just can't fathom you could actually do something like that, I think it's going to be really a challenge to pull it off. But if you can see yourself doing it, then I believe it's possible to, to accomplish. And did that include you seeing yourself with the gold medal? I did. I saw myself with the gold medal. I saw myself uh, bending my head down and somebody putting a gold medal around my neck saying, you will forever be an Olympic champion. Hmm. Uh, you know, I told people that that's what I wanted to accomplish. I, I visualized myself seeing the Star Spangled Banner and you know, I visualized myself beating the Russian who hadn't lost in six years and, and knowing that I was going to have to beat him. He was the reigning Olympic champion, knowing I was going to have to beat Buvasa Satya from Russia to win the gold medal. I knew that that was the case. And so, you know, I saw myself, I visualized myself beating him over and over and over. And, and again, I think that that's a really healthy thing to do mentally, because if you can if you can visualize yourself doing it, I think it's achievable. Mm. I was actually watching a clip of that on YouTube before we did this interview. Obviously, that was early on in the in the competition during those Summer Olympics in 2000 in Sydney. With that victory, with such a momentous achievement there of beating him, as, as you explained, undefeated for so long, did that put any extra pressure on yourself for the tournament? No, I think if anything, it, it released me from pressure because I've always been one to have the attitude. If, if you beat the number one seed or you beat the guy who everybody thinks you have to beat to win, well, then you become the number one seed. Now you become the guy that, that people realize, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to beat him to win. And so again, I think that's, again, that's a mental thing. That's, a, that's an attitude decision you make because, you know, one person may see it like, well, I beat the guy and got really lucky to do it can't believe I was able actually to do it and I did it. That's one attitude. I would say it's more of a glass is half empty attitude. Or you'd be like, hey, I beat the number one seed. Now I'm the number one seed. 
I think that's more the glasses is, is, you know, running over attitude. So I would say for me, it actually made me more confident. And ultimately you took the gold medal from those 2000 games, but it was after the German Alexander uh, Leipold was stripped for Nandrolone after he'd won the final against you. Just give us an idea of your initial feelings after the day of the final, and then also when you when you got the news that he'd been stripped of his medal. Yeah, that match. If you if anybody takes time to watch it, it's kind of like a it's a very kind of for me it's a very ominous match because all the points that he scored up until the very end were all given to him. You know, he didn't take me down. He didn't turn me. They they gave him a caution. Um, at the beginning of the second period and then they gave him two points and then they put me down and they gave him another, you know, gave me another caution, gave him another point. So essentially, you know, the refs, I, I actually got called for things there that I'd never been called for my whole entire wrestling career, which is just very strange to me. And, you know, they gave him his three points and then, you know, there was about whatever, 30, 40 seconds left and I'm behind. And so I started wrestling much differently than if I would have been ahead. And so I started taking some big risks, you know, there towards the end because I was behind and, and I ended up, you know, giving up a takedown at the very end. And that was the only point he actually really kind of scored on me. And, and so he ends up winning that match and it was a very frustrating period of time, you know, just that evening, I would say, uh, cause I just felt that I didn't really feel like it was refereed correctly. I felt like, um, in many ways it was kind of taken out of my hands, um, but I didn't cry over, you know, Olympic spilt milk for too long. Um, I realized that, that I gave my best effort that I could in that tournament, and I didn't have any regrets. I, I trained hard. Uh, I visualized getting to that point. <clears throat> I felt like a dot of my eyes crossed my T's, and, and I could be at peace with my effort. And though I didn't have the gold medal that night, I did have a, a silver medal for the Olympic Games. I feel like you know, humbly, I represented my, my country, my family, and my state, my town, uh, my friends in, in, in a positive way. So, you know, I realized that night that there's ultimately, you know, there's more to life than gold medals. And um, it's really, I think, your faith and your family and your friendships and, and giving full effort. I think those ultimately are the things that, that you need to value. And, you know, I clung tight to those things. And a couple of weeks later, you know, as you mentioned, we ended up finding out that that the German had tested positive for nandrolone steroids. I think he was 20 times over the limit and they took his gold medal away and watched his name clean from the record books. And they called me and told me that I was the new Olympic champion and they were going to have a new gold medal ceremony on the today show with Katie Couric and Matt Lauer and in, in New York city. And so, you know, they flew us all there. They flew the guy from Korea over to get the silver, the guy from Turkey over to go from fourth to third. You know, talk about somebody who's really excited because the Turk guy from Turkey, he didn't have a medal, right? So they bumped him from fourth (laughs) to third. So he was really pleased to get, you know, Olympic medal. And then, of course, they gave me my gold medal. And I did get a chance to sing the Star Spangled Banner. And I did get a chance to, to hear them say, you will forever be Olympic champion. And no, it wasn't in Sydney the night when I wanted it to happen. But it still happened and I'm still, um, I'm still thankful for it. And, you know, I, I hold that to, to a very high honor knowing that, you know, I didn't do drugs. And like I said, I'm not perfect. Nobody is perfect, but I felt like I, I did things right. Mm. And uh, I, I read an article uh, about the 
moment when you got your gold medal. And one of the things I, I read was that it was no longer in pristine condition. Was that right? Well, my the gold medal that I had actually was they made a, a new gold medal for me because they never got the gold medal back from the German. I don't know if, what he did with it, but oh wow, be um, interesting you know, to find had, out where that had, is. Yeah, they had a new gold medal for me, but I would say the silver medal that I had to mail back FedEx, I mailed that back. The silver medal was no longer in pristine condition because my mom tried to clean it with some type of like silver cleaner or something, which was not wise and it ended up kind of changing colors. And so in many ways, I'm very thankful that I, that I had, that I got to give that medal back. <laughs> uh, your your mum wasn't trying to spray paint it a different color, was she? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe that was her ulterior motive. <laughs> So once you've hit the the highs of being uh, an an Olympic champion and you've you've got your gold medal and and you've been on the Today Show, does there ever come a moment where you go, well, what's next? Of course, and I think every person who reaches some level of of summit in their life. You know, every, every person that accomplishes something, a goal that they set for themselves, I think that happens to everybody. And, you know, I, I think about this, that question you just asked, I think about it a lot because I feel like most people, um, I think they feel if, if they become Olympic champion or if they become, you know, wealthy or get a certain type of job or if they get a certain type of home or if they become a pro soccer player, a professional football player, or if they marry a specific person or if they get into a specific college, you know, whatever that, that goal or summit is for them. I think there's a lot of people that feel like once they reach that point in their life, that they will have made it and that they're, you know, it's like this panacea and there's going to be no more problems and everything is just going to be smooth sailing for the rest of their life. And I would say that, you know, that's really a, that's a lie. And what happens is that you, you accomplish your goal and it's very special and you enjoy the, the view at the top of the mountain, so to speak, you know, you enjoy the view, but ultimately, you know, you, you can't just stay up there on top of the mountain for the rest of your life. Mm. You have to, uh, you know, you have to take your pictures and, and, you know, breathe some fresh air, but then you have to walk back down and you have to go find another mountain to climb. You have to go find another set of goals to accomplish. And I think the danger is though, is some people, they, they reach that summit and they, they want to stay up there. And they don't want to come down and they want to, they, they draw their value from that. And that's what defines them and ends up being kind of sad because when it defines who they are and they draw their value from that, I think they, they really miss out on the rest of their life. And, you know, for me, there was a like, well, what's next? I mean, I did ask myself that question, but I'm really thankful that, that I chose to go to an Ivy League school and go to the Warren School of Business and, and that there was opportunity for me for life after wrestling. And, you know, what's next for me is I knew that I wanted to, God willing, be married one of these days and have a family, which, you know, now I'm married and have three girls, six, four, and a two-year-old, and we have a fourth child on the way, which I hope it's a boy this time around. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the what's next for me was, that was a positive thing. It wasn't like, well, I won the gold medal and now there's, there's not going to be any more joy for me the rest of my life. There was like, well, okay, that's, I, I accomplished my goal there. The view is really, really nice. Okay. Let me take some pictures of the view, so to speak, but you know, let's walk back down the mountain and let's go find 
let's go find another mountain to climb. And I think that's how, that's how we should view goals. Mm. Are they things that should be set regularly then to help that? Or is it something that should just be set when they come? No, I think you should always think in advance of what, what your goals are. And let's say goals, those are just things that you want to accomplish mm. down the road. And that could be three months, six months, you know, a year, it could be five years, 10 years. I mean, you can clearly define what those goals are based on timelines. But I would say just for people listening that it's, it's actually pretty easy to set objective goals. What I mean by that is to say, athletically speaking, like I want to be a state champion. I want to be a national champion. I want to be Olympic champion. It's easy to write those down. But the challenge is, is to actually create process goals. And so what I mean by that is like, if I say I want to be Olympic champion, well, what's, what's that going to take? Well, it's going to take me wrestling in high school. It's going to take me wrestling in college. There's a lot of things that are going to take place before I even get to Olympics, before I can accomplish that. Well, what else is going to take? I'm going to have to get better at my offense on the mat. I have to get better at my defense. I'm going to have to get stronger. I'm going to have to get faster. And so there's all these other things that are going to need to be accomplished before I can become an Olympic champion. So then I have to set these other process goals along the way to help me accomplish those. So, I mean, it's easy to say, like, just to pick a goal and say, hey, I want to be the president of a company or I want to be, you know, a professional soccer player. I want to be, you know, a businessman. Well, okay, where are you at now? And what is it going to take for you to get to that point? What's the process it's going to take for you to get to that point? And then here's the, here's the most important question that most most people aren't willing to do. The most important question is, but, but what are you willing to sacrifice to get there? Mm-hmm. Again, a lot of people can, they can tweet out, I want to be Olympic champion. A lot of people can, can type that out and put that on their wall. But the challenge is, is figuring out the process it's going to take to get there. And then ultimately, like, what are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to sacrifice not being married, not having kids for a period of time? Are you willing to sacrifice, you know, financial gain for a period of time to accomplish your dream are you willing to sacrifice waking up at five o'clock in the morning six o'clock in the morning are you willing to sacrifice you know (laughs) being weighing 184 pounds and and get cutting weight getting down to 167 and being really disciplined with your diet to make weight again there's ad infinitum there's tons of things people have to sacrifice to reach their goals but i think that's the that's the hardest um, part of it is what you're willing to sacrifice Mm, amazing advice and I think that leads us on to kind of wrapping up this interview I know we're running out of time and I, I did open the questions up to to the audience as well and I know you uh, you shared it on on Twitter as well Brandon we, we've got a question from Hunter Kemper who of course was a, a an Olympian himself as a, a triathlete and he wanted to know what your one piece of advice to parents raising up young wrestlers would be My main advice would be to not put too much pressure on them when they're young and to make sure that they have a have a healthy um, growth in the sport and not just wrestling, I would say any sport, just to make sure that they 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 fall in love with that sport if that's a sport they're going to you know do for the rest of their life. Um, because I think the opposite is a lot of parents, they start getting their kids involved in sports when they're four, five, six, seven years old, and they go to too many practices during the week. There's way too many competitions um, throughout the year where pressure is put on them to perform. And when you're a six, seven, eight year old and all this pressure is being put on you already, you know, a lot of times kids just, they, they don't fall in love with the sport and they choose not to do it when they get in middle school or high school. 
And if you would have just kind of introduced them to a sport at slower pace and allowed them to kind of fall in love with it on their own, if they were going to, they could potentially be doing it all the way to the Olympics. Um, and, and I see, I see parents, they burn their kids out all the time in sports, you know, in wrestling, we see it a lot. We see these parents taking their kids to tournaments every single weekend. These little kids, six, seven, eight year olds are getting 50 or 60 matches in a year, which I just think <laughs> that's not going to cause a kid to fall in love with the sport. If anything, I'd say majority of them are going to get burnt out and they're not going to be wrestling by the time they get to be in high school. Amazing advice, Brandon. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Just before you go, can you let us know where we can find you on Twitter or any form of social media so we can continue to follow this great knowledge and, and your amazing life? Sure. All my social media is just at Coach Slay, Coach, S-L-A-Y. So that's what I am on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Perfect. We'll put links to it when this podcast goes on the air. Brandon Slay, Olympic wrestling champion, thank you for being on the program and thank you for being the best in the world. Thank you, sir. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. It was great to have Brandon on the podcast as our first Olympic champion wrestler. If you are into your fight and combat sports, you might want to go back and listen to my interviews with Ken Shamrock, a UFC Hall of Famer, and also Dan the Beast Severin. Dan actually made my list of best interviews of 2017, my favourite interviews. I've produced an article called Best of the Best 2017 where I pick my six favourites. Dan is on it. To find out who the other five best interviews are go to sportachino.com it's under the news section there there's an article i'll also put a link to it on this podcast description page as well so you'll be able to click through and listen back to some of the best interviews of 2017 but guess what we've got even more great champions coming for you this year in 2018 every single thursday a brand new podcast comes up so Make sure you don't miss any of them. You can subscribe to us on Acast if you're on the Acast platform. You can also do the same on iTunes and Stitcher. It is the best way to make sure you never miss a piece of golden knowledge from these Olympic and world champions. All right, I've been Richard Parr. I'll be back next Thursday, but until then, stay safe and have a great week. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 